know about, about you guys, but I'm having a lot of fun with it, and I'm going to continue to have fun today. Would you stand with me? The case for God, the Bible. We're going to read a passage out of first, Second Peter chapter 1. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain and we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke as God had by the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I thank you that you have given us your word, and I, Lord, I pray that you'd make your word alive today. Make it, a word, make it alive in our hearts. I pray that you would quicken us, that the Holy Spirit would touch every person that is here so that they might hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The Bible is a miraculous book, and uh, today we're going to take a, a quick look at simply how miraculous it is. Uh, we can't cover any of the topics in great depth, but I want to cover uh, five things real quickly. I want to cover facts and figures. Uh, can we trust it? Trust it to be what it says it is. Uh, some issues that are involved in it, some proofs, and what does it do? And the facts and figures are going to be things that will be a little old hat for some of you, but that's okay because we live basically in a biblically illiterate society. Here. And so for a lot of people, uh, this, this is new stuff. And I want you to uh, know this because, you see, it's not until you start feeding yourself that you really begin to grow. And some people are scared away from the Bible because they feel like they don't know anything about it. And so you're going to know something about it today. In fact, you're going to know more than, than, than most people do. First of all, it's, it's not one book. It's a collection. It's a library. It's a library of, uh, of 66 books. Uh, written over a period of well over a thousand years in the Old Testament. Uh, Job is considered to be the oldest book, it's not the first one, but it's the oldest one in terms of when it was written. Uh, the ideas about when it was written, though, can range from anywhere from 1900 B.C. to 400 B.C. Um, that's a pretty big range. That's like 1,500 years. Most, uh, most, the radical ideas are around 400. Most people would... Uh, would date it closer to the middle of the second millennium before Christ. Uh, the last one to be written, uh, for the most part, people tend to believe it's Revelation. Uh, most Bible scholars believe it's Revelation. Uh, there is a minority that thinks that Second Peter perhaps was written after that. Uh, concerning Revelation, the dates that um, uh, people claim for it to be written are generally between A.D. 70 and A.D. 95. And those of you who don't know, how many of you, I mean, be honest, I mean, most of you know B.C. stands for before Christ. How many of you actually know what A.D. stands for? 
you guys are just brilliant, but uh, um, I don't think everybody raised their hand. Since for Anno Domini, it's, it's Latin, it, it uh, means the year of our Lord. Uh, concerning B.C., occasionally today you'll see uh, B.C.E. rather than B.C., and, and, and that's trying to secularize it and go before common era. The only thing is 500 B.C. and 500 B.C.E. are the same year. And so that means something happened long around zero. Jesus Christ is what happened. Uh, Second Peter, uh, the theories on when it was written are anywhere from AD 60 to 160. It's all over the place. Those aren't really outliers. They're, they're strong arguments for every, every uh, decade uh, in, that, in that space. But most would place it closer to the beginning, would place it closer to around 60 AD. Um, there are at least 40 authors in the writing of, uh, of, of the Bible, but as Peter says, there's really only one author, and that one author was the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's an, a, a magnificent unity in the Bible, and when you consider that at least 40 people were involved in writing this over a period of at least a thousand years, maybe closer to 2,000 years, and they came from all different stratas of society, all different all different places and walks of life, and yet there's this incredible unity to it. You understand that this is not your average, it's not your average book. There's, there, had to be, there had to be a unifying factor behind it, and that unifying factor was the Holy Spirit because prophecy didn't come, doesn't come from man. Prophecy, by definition, is the word of the Lord. It's bringing the word of the Lord, and so the Holy Spirit is actually the one who wrote this book. Um... Concerning the storyline, the chronology of, uh, of, the, of the Bible, it's not in chronological order for the most part. Um, in fact, once you get to 2 Kings, chronological order is now gone. But Genesis through 2 Kings in the Old Testament, that's, uh, uh, that's pretty much in chronological order. And some people go, well, you know, how, how can I keep up with this if the plot's not continuing on from book to book to book? Uh, we're used to not keep, we're, we're used to backstory. We're used to fill. We're used to, if you can watch Lost, you can read the Bible. In fact, it's a lot easier to read the Bible than it is to watch Lost. Now, if you're brand new to the Bible, uh, probably you'll want to start in the New Testament. Start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and they're, well, they're not really in chronological order either, but... Uh, and, and then go on to Acts, but that, that'll give you, that, that's a good place to start. But if you're looking for the chronology, for the plot, then basically uh, in the Old Testament, Genesis through 2 Kings or what does that. The original language it was, uh, it was written in, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, couple of brief sections of Aramaic, uh, mostly in the book of Daniel. And the New Testament uh, was written in, uh, in Greek. They weren't, uh, they weren't written in any modern languages. They were written in the older languages. The full Bible has been translated into 518 languages, and some portion of the Bible has been translated into oh, over 2,700 languages, almost 2,800 languages. Uh, the present books that we have them, some people say, well, where'd they come from? They were established by major councils. Uh, the New Testament was established by Christian councils. The the Old Testament was established by the uh, rabbinical uh, Judaism, rabbinical tradition. Um, 
the Old Testament by the time somewhere between 400 B.C. and 200 A.D. That, that canon was complete. It was closed. Nothing was to be added. The New Testament, that would be around 300 uh, A.D. That that, uh, that that canon was closed. And, and one other thing before I move on, just a little bit more to talk about this, uh, because some people may wonder, what is a concordance? You know, sometimes the Bible says Holy Bible and concordance. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a very useful thing. Uh, a concordance is basically a, is like an index. There's a, there is a, the words are in alphabetical order, and it will tell you, if you look up a particular word, it will tell you what verses of the Bible that word appears in. So if you're looking uh, for, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, where is that? I, I'd like to know where to find it. Well, you can maybe look up everlasting. Uh, or eternal depending on the translation that you're in and it'll tell you that oh okay it appears over here in john 3 that sounds familiar john 3 16 go there and 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 get me some of that uh the numbers uh, as far as chapters they weren't established until um around 1200 uh a.d uh verses were added uh in around 1500 a.d so if you were to actually meet john and say to him uh Wow, man, really, I'm a big admirer of your, of your 316. I mean, it's really great. He wouldn't know what you're talking about because he didn't, he didn't put those numbers in there, but we have them, and they're very useful. They're very handy. Uh, can we trust the Bible? How about these manuscripts? Are they, uh, are they something that we can trust? We're really working with two different things here. The Old Testament manuscripts, uh, the ones in original Hebrew, we really don't have any really old ones. Because the tradition that the scribes had was that when one of the manuscripts uh, became worn, or certainly if one of them was a, in any way defective, they would ceremonially, ceremonially, uh, did I get enough syllables in there? They would ceremonially burn it uh, so it didn't exist anymore. However, the guys who, uh, and maybe there's some gals involved too, I don't know, but the people who were involved in preserving the Old Testament manuscripts, these, these were real nerds in the, in the way that they did things. They counted every word and every letter that was involved in the, trend, in, in, the, uh, in the manuscripts, in the original manuscript, and they determined the middle letter and the middle word of the books of Moses, the first five books, and they determined the middle letter and the middle word of, of the entire canon of the Old Testament, and when a new copy was made, they would count the words and the letters to be sure that the middle one was the right one. In fact, if you're interested, there are 304,805 letters in the works of Moses. And so they would count the, uh, the first 152,803rd letter to be sure it was the right letter. And uh, they, got it, they got it pretty accurate. Because when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and these are the old ones that we have, they were over a thousand years older than the oldest one that we had. And the only variants that they could find in reading whatsoever were a couple of variants in spelling. So, yeah, Old Testament manuscripts, absolutely. New Testament manuscripts, it's pretty remarkable. There are, there are almost 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts that that still exist and if that um, just to kind of put that into context if you look at plato and aristotle and 
and, and those guys. Nobody's got more than 20 in terms of the original manuscripts. And most of those were from the 7th century on after, after Christ and were over a thousand years after the original writings. The earliest manuscript that they have for the New Testament, uh, the earliest fragment of a manuscript, is they have the book of John from the year 130 A.D., which was less than 50 years after the original had been written. So they've got, they've got some pretty... And with all of those thousands of manuscripts that they have, the variants are... I mean, obviously there are some variant readings, but the variants, none of them are significant enough to call into question any New Testament doctrines. And, and, and textual critics would say that 99.5% uh, is considered accurate beyond any doubt whatsoever. The other half of a percent uh, can be ascertained with a high degree of textural uh, probability now i just want to say one other thing before I, I move on virtually all the modern translations are really really good because they didn't come from you know they didn't translate from a translation from a translation they they go back to the oldest manuscripts they can find they get the finest scholars they can find they translate that way there is one that i want to tell you you just can't trust and it's a thing called the New World Translation. And the reason why you can't trust that is that translation was basically put out by a sect that made some changes to support some of their doctrines that they have. So if you run across one of those, don't, don't freak out and don't get into a, a big argument about it. Just go, can we use a real Bible, please? <laughs> the content. One of the reasons people object uh, to the Bible or think that they have objections to the Bible it's because they don't really know what's there. Uh, they re don't really know what they're talking about. Let's, let's take a, a, a few true and false uh, questions here. The Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, if you've been coming here long enough, you, you know that that's absolutely false. I used to say that uh, Lauren Green was the one who said that on Bonanza, but nobody knows who he is anymore except for us old people. And uh, so I, I, it was Ronald Reagan, actually, I think, who said it. He's the president. You don't forget about them. Uh, how about this one? The books of the New Testament were written centuries after the events they described. Ah, some people think that, but man, they were... Peter says, we were eyewitnesses. We saw this happen. And, the, and these books were in circulation while people were still alive during the events that they talk about. Third thing, cleanliness is next to godliness is in the Bible. Actually, that's false. My mother made that one up. She's, she's the one, she's the one who, uh, who got that started. So what happens when you raise a boy. According to the Bible, the earth is flat. There are people who think that the Bible says that, but not at all. You know, it's not, 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 in, there, not in there at all. Okay, how about this? Uh, the earliest New Testament manuscripts go back only to the 4th or 5th centuries A.D. Just, so y'all were listening to what I said earlier, and y'all are still thinking about it, right? Yeah, of course that's false. Like I said, the, we actually have... Uh, the book of John from uh, the early 2nd century, which is pretty remarkable. Um, the Bible teaches that the earth is the center of the universe. The Bible doesn't teach that the earth is the center of the universe. Uh, there, have, there have been some, 
some people who have tried to infer that, but it's not because the Bible gave them permission to do so. Uh, one more. Uh, the English Bible is a translation of a translation of a translation of the original, and fresh errors were introduced at each stage in the process. Was everybody listening to what I said earlier? Yes, of course that's false, because the translations that we have today are taken from directly from the Greek. Some, uh, some proofs, some interesting things in the Bible. The prophet Isaiah uh, lived during the time of several of the kings. Hezekiah was one of the kings that he served. Hezekiah um, became sick and was going to die. And he had a miraculous recovery. And after his miraculous recovery, there were envoys from Babylon who came to congratulate him on his miraculous recovery. And Hezekiah showed them around, showed them everything. And Isaiah came to him later and said, who were those guys? What, what were they here for? And Hezekiah said, well, they were from a place, uh, someplace called Babylon. And they, they came and, uh, to congratulate me on getting well. well what did you show them? I showed them everything. And Isaiah said this to him. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Now, the latest that this could have been said was 690. It was probably more like 700 before Christ, B.C. Uh, so it was at least 85 years before any of this happened that, that it happened. Now, you kind of go, 85 years, that's not too long. We well, see, but that even makes it more incredible because Isaiah was well known to the exiles. This wasn't something that somebody decided, let's, let's add this. After, after it happened and go, because it'll really make Isaiah look good. They couldn't do that. I mean, understand, we're dealing with people here who counted all of the letters and all of the words that were in their holy text because they considered them to be so holy. So really only, only two generations later is when it took place. So nobody could have slipped it in and, go, and everybody go, oh, oh, I didn't know that was in there. No, it was in there. And the fact that Isaiah said it is really incredible because, you see, Babylon was not a world power at this time. Babylon wasn't, I mean, it was like saying uh, everything in Nashville is going to be carted off to Bolivia someday, you know. And you kind of go, Bolivia, really? Yeah. yeah. So, but Isaiah prophesied it, and it came true, and he didn't, you know, at that point in time, you would have think, thought Assyria would have been the ones who, was gonna, who were going to do it. Or maybe it would be destroyed, or maybe somebody else would come get it. No. Nailed it. Isaiah also nailed it later on with regard to, to uh, Cyrus. And I've mentioned this several times, but it's just so remarkable. Isaiah 44, 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. The, the latest this could have been written was 650 B.C., which was over 100 years before Cyrus came to power. Nobody knew there was, and he was Cyrus the first. You know, it wasn't like, oh, well, Cyrus, yeah, let's pick out that name because a bunch of kings are Cyrus. No. And not only did he nail who was going to do it, but he also nailed the fact that he was going to decree that the temple would be rebuilt. The temple hadn't been destroyed yet. And Isaiah called who was going to issue the decree to rebuild it. I find that to be pretty incredible. 
Ancient history can be difficult to verify, but in the cases where historians have, have thought that they had detected errors in the Bible, they've often startlingly discovered that they were wrong and the Bible was correct. And in the places where they have not yet startlingly discovered that, they will. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I think. I've mentioned it this year, but the uh, situation in Daniel concerning Belshazzar. Because for, uh, for decades, historians thought, well, Daniel, no, Daniel uh, got this wrong. Couldn't, couldn't have been right because there wasn't anybody named Belshazzar. And so the person who wrote Daniel didn't even know their history very well. But then in the middle of the last century, they discovered records that in fact, this guy, this guy Belshazzar did exist. Not only did he exist, he was co-regent with Nabonidus, who was the last king of Babylon. And that even led more credence to Daniel because in the, in the book of Daniel, where it, in chapter 5, where it talks about Belshazzar, when the handwriting came on the wall, he said, whoever can translate this for me, I'll make him the third highest in the kingdom. And that explains why he could only make him the third highest because there were already... There was him and another guy. This is, this, is pretty, this is pretty creditable stuff concerning the thing. Well, what about the crazy stuff? You know, what about the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace and Jonah being swallowed by a whale and, and Elijah going up to heaven in a chariot of fire? I believe them. I believe they all happen. And I have a, a good reason why I believe they all happen. If you remember last week, we talked about the historical evidence for Christ rising from the dead. You remember? None of you were willing to die for Springhouse. None of you were willing to die for or come along with my marvelous plan to uh, start a new religion based on Harvey Meek being raised from the dead. Even though, even though you would get speaking engagements and you would be able to write books and maybe be famous someday. None of you were willing to do it. Because nobody will do that for a lie. And so Jesus Christ did rise from the dead because those who said that he did, virtually all of them gave their life for their testimony. I believe God can raise the dead. Why should I have any problem believing that God can rescue somebody out of a fish? Why would I have any problem believing that God can rescue somebody through a fire? Why would I have any problem believing that God can send down a chariot and take some? There are more people walking around out there who would have no more problem, who would have less problem with aliens coming and abducting Elijah and taking him up to the planet Zunu than with God sending a chariot of fire and taking him up to heaven. God sent a chariot of fire and took him up to heaven. That's what I mean. Raise the dead. He can do anything. As far as I'm concerned. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with these because you see... There, there is so much that the Bible has proven to be true that it gives credence to the rest. There are some people that, uh, that when I ask them to do something, I don't think about it again because I know it's done. There are some people that when I ask them to do something, I don't ask them to do something because I have asked them to do something in the past, maybe more than once, and discovered that I was going to have to go back and do it, or it wasn't going to get done, or something like that. Now, what's the difference in those two groups of people? 
This one has credence. This one has trust because I've seen them come through again and again and again. This one doesn't. The Bible has credence, has trust. There, there are some things that, no, I don't understand. There are some things that, you know, I kind of go, yeah, boy, it sounds weird to me, but you know what? I trust it because, I'm, because of the things that it's already come in and delivered on. With regard to science, the Bible's clearly not a science book, but when it speaks of scientific matters, I believe it's true. I mentioned these two weeks ago. Job 26.7 says, He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. 3,000 years before Galileo, the writer of the Bible is going, Hey, the earth is hung out there in space over nothing. Isaiah Chapter 40, verse 22, speaking of the Lord, says he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. If you're out in space and you're looking at a planet, if you're looking at earth, or if you're at earth, looking at the moon for that matter, what does it look like? Circle. 2,700 years ago, Isaiah knew that. Genesis 2, 3, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. It was only this century that science finally caught up with that and realized everything that's going to be made has been made, at least until the new heaven and new earth comes along. 1 Corinthians 2, 7, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Once again, this century before science caught up and, went and realized, yeah, Time had a starting point. It, it, there is a difference between time and eternity. They aren't necessarily, well, they aren't at all the same thing. With regard to life, the Bible tells us how to live. And we don't always like it because it cuts against our, our fleshly nature. It cuts against our desires Sometimes so we don't necessarily like what it's told us to do, but the people who have yielded to it and tried to conform their life to it, wow, it makes such a difference. Because I do their funerals. And I do the others' funerals as well. And when somebody has spent their life as a man or a woman of the Word, spent their life following the Lord, you get to that last day, you get actually beyond the last day, you get to the point where people are remembering what their life is, and there's such a sweet fragrance that's left behind. There's such a meaningful, pleasing aroma that's left behind you. And you, and you come out of, I'm, it, just in the last month, I guess, I've been to two uh, funerals for saints, and come out of both of them feeling like, yeah! Yeah, that was good. That was good. That's the way you live. That's the kind of life you want to leave behind. I've done the other kind of funerals too. Of people who pay no attention whatsoever to God's word. And very often, yeah, there are tears. But it's because everybody's so mad because they didn't get to settle all the issues before that person checked out. Oftentimes, quite seriously. There's a sense of emptiness. A sense of futility. Not a sense of glory or of hope. So the Bible tells us how to live. Let me very quickly, and I do have to quickly look at a couple of issues here. 
In a book this size, of course, there are issues people have, and I don't want to look at two quickly. Why, why did God command Israel to kill all the inhabitants of Canaan? Sounds like genocide. In fact, it, it was. Uh, well, let me just say a couple things about it. First of all, note that it was a, a localized, specific command. They were, if they were, went to war with a nation, with a, with a city, outside of their immediate area there in Canaan, they were to offer peace to them, make peace, if the people would do it. But inside of Canaan, here was the command. In the cities of the nations the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, do not leave anything alive that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise... They will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. You will sin against the Lord your God. Israel is a special case. Israel was the chosen people, not because they were smarter than anybody else or better looking than anybody else or stronger than anybody else, but because of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he chose them. And while you may go, wow, it must be great to be chosen of God. Uh, Yeah, it is, but it's not easy to be chosen of God. And the reason that he chose them was so he could reveal himself to mankind through them. And for that to happen, two things had to, had to be assured. One, they had to continue in their national identity. And two, the Lord had to continue to be their God. And he knew they were going into this land. It was a very wicked land, wicked people. And that the style of worship that these people had was going to appeal to his people. Why would it appeal to his people? Because the style of worship that they had appealed completely to the flesh. I mean, they, uh, orgies were involved in their worship, unfaithfulness is involved in their worship. Really, some radical, wild stuff was involved in their worship. And it was the kind of thing that, that we're attracted to. God said, uh-uh, we, 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 we can't go there. Because you see, if that happens and I can't reveal myself to mankind, mankind can't be redeemed. Because I'm going to send the Redeemer through this line. Now, one other thing, one other thought, and this is just my thought, okay? Because the Bible doesn't tell me this, but it, does in kind of a roundabout way. See, when something is devoted to destruction, it becomes holy to the Lord. When the Lord says, destroy this and don't you touch it, it's mine. It becomes holy to the Lord. Now, what does that mean, really? I don't absolutely know, but I think being holy to the Lord is a good thing. So am I saying that all these people that were destroyed are in heaven? I don't know. I don't know. I know that wasn't where they were headed beforehand. I know it would be better to be a stillborn child and go to heaven than to live 100 years and and be damned for eternity. I know it would be better to, to die a quick and violent death and go to heaven than to live a long and... And life with all the riches of this world and be damned for eternity? I don't know. But maybe. 
just may, I, I trust God. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. I trust him. That's simply what it boils down to. And then also very quickly, this is a question that people often ask. If God's so powerful, if God loves us and all this, why does God allow so much suffering? Why doesn't he do something about it? Well, first of all, let me just say, suffering is in the world because of sin. Sin is in the world because we refuse to believe God's word and ate of that tree. And so suffering is because of sin. Sin is in the world because we refuse to, 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 to believe God. We, had, we, were, we were given free will so that we could make that choice because without free will, love doesn't exist. You can't love somebody if you have no choice. It requires choice. And then ultimately, the reason why God doesn't do something about it is because God has already done something about it. He sent His Son to die on the cross for it. He, he, he suffered so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be made whole. Well, but bad stuff's still going on in the world. There was those bombs that went off in Boston and the, the plant exploded in Texas. And you know what? Those, as bad as those things were, those weren't the worst things that happened last week. We just don't know about them. Yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. So why, why does God wait? Well, Peter tells us that. He's not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Look, I don't, I don't know how this works, but I know that, that ultimately it would be better for 100,000 people to die in the next year and one person to not be damned to eternity who would have been otherwise. God has this figured out. He knows when the right time is. He knows exactly when it should be, and, and I trust him. Is it worth it? Well, Paul says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, we think we're going to get to heaven and we're going to go, God, why did this happen? Why did you do that? None of that. None of that. Uh, I'm a baseball fan, at least when it comes to the San Francisco Giants, the world champion, San Francisco Giants. Two out of the last three years, world champion. Uh, and I have been a Giants fan for 54 years. So for the first 53 years, we did not win a World Series. And there were years during those first 53 that I was like, this is just wrong you know I mean that was a bad call and why did this guy get hurt and why did that happen and who likes baseball anyway <laughs> but in 2010 we won the World Series and you know what it was so sweet <laughs> because I waited 51 years for it to happen it was just so, Mario, your day may be coming. I don't know, buddy. I mean, the Cubs, okay. Uh, but it was just so sweet. And that can't even compare. You know, when you get to heaven, you're not going to ask God anything. You're just going to shout all around God's heaven. That's what you're going to do. <laughs> We're stuck in time. And I'm out of it. But I actually have two minutes, so here we go. What does the Bible do? 
Let me tell you this real quickly. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's a dangerous book to read. You read it, it starts doing stuff to you. You, you read it, it starts showing you stuff that's going on in your life, and it changes who you are. Very quickly, I, a guy was telling me about a, a study that, um, that was done concerning the way people live and uh, the impact certain things had on it, uh, people who are Christians. And, uh, you know, they did a study for people who go to church regularly, people who are in a small group, people who um, uh, tithe, people who pray a lot. And, and, uh, and he said, you know, there was really only one thing that made a huge difference in the way they lived. I said, I know what it is. You didn't have to tell me what it was. It's reading the Word. And, and what this, this study did was it looked at people who, read the, who were engaged with the Word at least four times a week. That means the more days than they're not, they are engaged with the Word. And just very quickly, some of the things they found, uh, those people were 62% less likely to drink to excess, uh, 59% less likely to engage in sex outside of marriage. Now, these are all Christians. 31% less likely to have anger issues. 40% less likely to harbor bitterness, 31% less likely to harbor unforgiveness. You're dealing with bitterness? Try reading the Word. Try engaging with the Word. Dealing with unforgiveness? Try engaging with the Word. 60% less likely to feel spiritually stagnant. 416% more likely to give financially to the church. Engage with the Word, people. <laughs> But it's not just the church because they're also 218% more likely to give financially other than to the church. They're just more generous people. It changes who you are. It changes, it changes the way that you live. 228% more likely to share their faith. The Bible makes a positive difference. Certainly made a positive difference in my life. You say, well, other books make a positive difference. Yeah, for a week, for a month. You know, if it's really good, maybe 10 years, maybe a century, but millenniums across all cultures known to mankind, people of all ages and all stations of life, the Bible's not your regular book. You know, and I, I don't have time to go into, well, you know, but some of it, uh, there doesn't, you know, some of it seems to be illogical, some of it, you know, what about this? It says this here, it says this. Look, if a man had written it, a man would go through and go, let's clean all this up so it looks logical. To me, I mean, God just goes, I am God, this is my book, read it, it's the truth. Bam, there it is. And I trust him. Would you stand with me, please? Would those who are going to pray with people come come forward and if you're here and you need prayer I'm here to tell you God's alive and he does stuff yeah I believe he rescued out of the fiery furnace and the belly of the great fish and all that and then you know I, if you if you don't believe it I don't have a problem with you but I, I believe it And you know what? He can take care of what's going on in your life right now. 
Now, you're going to have an easier time believing that if you believe the other, but maybe we, can work, maybe we can work the other way around. Maybe you can ask him to do some stuff, and he can show you, yeah, yeah, I'm real. And then you finally get back going, oh, my goodness, he did it all, didn't he? It works that way, too. If you need prayer, you come. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, we'd love to introduce you to him because he died for you. And he sent the Holy Spirit to bring you here today because he wants to meet you. If, uh, if you don't need prayer, worship with us for a few moments. We'll wait on those. We'll wait on those who do. Wait on those who do. Come. questions you may still have things where you go well I just don't know the only requirement is that you be hungry that you be thirsty that's all he says he, he doesn't say let everybody who's got it all figured out come to me he said anyone who's thirsty come anyone who's hungry come 
you'll find food for your soul. Raise your hand. Let me give you a blessing. May the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who sent his Son into the world as the living word, confirming the written word, may that word be alive in you. May it change and transform you into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.